Welcome to the Media Box Podcast. In this week's episode, I've got highlights from San Diego Comic-Con, announcements from the Toronto International Film Festival, the Emmy Award nominations, reviews of the To-Do List, R.I.P.D. and Red 2, upcoming Blu-ray releases, plus my favorite summer movies. First up, here's James McAvee, the star of X-Men Days of Future Past. I can't be in a room with this many people without saying, how you doing, Comic-Con? I'm really sorry, I couldn't hear you. How you doing, Comic-Con? Uh, it's great, this is the very first time I've ever been here. I was in the halls this morning, where I got my cool t-shirt, and it is amazing the passion you guys have, so it's awesome to be amongst you. It's Friday, July 26, 2013, and I'm Andrew Powell, the editor-in-chief of The Gate. This episode of Media Box is a double feature, but for very good reason. Not only do I have highlights from Comic-Con in San Diego, but I also have the first announcements from the Toronto International Film Festival. These are two huge events, and both of them represent where stars and fans go once a year to bask in the glory of some of the biggest movies and television shows out there. For Comic-Con, I've gathered clips from the event, which always features some of the big new releases expected in the coming months. Plus one of the first new games that will debut with Xbox One in November, Dead Rising 3. Considering the fact that Comic-Con is just the most massive event, there's no way that I can talk about everything that was announced, so I'm going to single out some of the things that I loved. That said, a lot of what happened definitely revolves around returning sequels and spin-offs. That's interesting, since this year has been a tough summer for big-budget movies, but personally, I wonder if that's a problem with the films themselves rather than the audiences. The biggest news at Comic-Con had to be that Warner Brothers will be making a Man of Steel and Batman crossover movie, which is going to star Henry Cavill and an as-yet-to-be-cast Bruce Wayne. This seems like a no-brainer for DC Comics, who have obviously not been doing quite as well as Marvel in the last few years, but it begs the question what the two heroes will be facing off against, and who could possibly play the next Batman. Speaking of Marvel, they were pushing their upcoming films hard, but the biggest news had to be the title for the Avengers sequel, The Avengers Age of Ultron. For the non-comic book nerds out there, Ultron is a robot that was created by Ant-Man, who will no doubt try to kill any Marvel heroes he can find. Time will tell if he proves to be the proper villain, but the trick of this franchise seems to be the heroes rather than the villains anyway. Marvel was also showing off stars and clips from their films Thor, The Dark World, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, Guardians of the Galaxy, and their fall TV series, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which will also feature Kobe Smulders, it was announced. Off the comic book trail, and more in line with just general promotion at Comic-Con, The Hunger Games Catching Fire had a lot of fans excited after they debuted their first major trailer. Ender's Game also took the spotlight with a whole experience for the upcoming film, and by bringing out the one and only Harrison Ford. Here are some of the best highlights I dug up from Comic-Con, including clips from The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Ender's Game, Catching Fire, and Thor The Dark World, plus details for Dead Rising 3. Before any of those, here's a little more from the panel for X-Men Days of Future Past, with director Brian Singer, star Hugh Jackman, Sir Patrick Stewart, and Halle Berry. Mr. Singer, you know, when you... As the director of this film, you were pulling together a lot of disparate things. You have two different sets of X-Men. Uh, you have a very large cast. Obviously, they're not all in, in the same place at one time. But does that uh, is that an invigorating challenge, or is that uh, you know something you have to overcome? Uh, it's a scheduling nightmare. 
It's a logistical nightmare, but uh, but no, it, it, it's it's great. I actually like ensemble films. I, I started with uh, Usual Suspects, which is an ensemble film. <laughs> so, and uh, I enjoy I enjoy working with a, a lot of uh, there's a lot of interesting people to cut to when you're making an ensemble film, and uh, so I think the more the merrier. But I think the blend of these two casts is extremely unique, um, and it's just a thrill for me because I I was involved as a producer with the. Uh, X-Men First Class and story writer, but not as a director, so it's an opportunity to work with this incredible group of people uh, who I've been enormous fans of for years, and to return with uh, this family of people who uh, I'm right at home with. So it, it, it came quite easy. Oh man, this is an embarrassment of riches. I mean, look, to work with the, the people in, who were in the very first film I ever did, that's incredible alone, and then to work with this new lot. This is about, this is two great movies in one. If I just got to do one of these movies in my life, I'd be happy. The fact I'm with everybody here, uh, this is something I'll never forget. Patrick, uh, earlier today you were telling me a little bit about the, the uh, esprit de corps of the Starfleet crew that you were part of. <laughs> Compare this ensemble and, and, and the energy and, and the, the togetherness of it. We've heard the word blessing several times today, and to experience uh, a job uh, as an actor with a great group of people whom you not only respect and admire, but love to once in a career is um, enviable. But in my case, to have had that experience twice in a career feels quite extraordinary. That's lovely. I, you know, what I've always loved about Storm is that well, I have something I love about her and something I hate about her. I'm going to tell you what I love first. What I love about Storm is that she's, she's like the earth mother of the group. And I think that's part of my own personality that resonates and what attracted me to Storm in the beginning. She's usually the calm, cool voice of reason. Um, um, besides being a badass when she needs to be, she's, she's kind of the mom of the group. What I hate about Storm is that she never gets any love. <laughs> like, what's up with Storm? <laughs> I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. I mean, you guys probably know, wait a minute, you guys probably know more about the comic book than me, probably. Is she like asexual and nobody's told me? No, no, Black <laughs> Panther. Because I really don't understand. Mary's Black Panther. Why Storm can't get any love? <laughs> but I, I loved, when, when I got called to come back and play Storm again, it didn't take me but a half a second to say, send me that wig, give me that costume, I'm, I'm in. I love being a part of this franchise, and I love all the people that are sitting up here, the ones I've known for 13 years and the new friends that I've just made. I couldn't think of a better way to spend time working on a movie with this great group of people, and I'm so glad Brian Singer is back. Yeah, yeah. I'm so glad Brian Singer Next up, here's Amazing Spider-Man director Mark Webb talking about the sequel, followed by star Andrew Garfield. It's really exciting. This is, uh, um, how do I put it? It's really one of uh, the most exciting chapters in Peter Parker's life, and, and, and he's learning to be really good at being Spider-Man. He's very, very good at it, very agile, and level, there's a sort of level of virtuosity that we haven't seen before. And that, that fun and that playfulness and that confidence is gonna, uh, I think, makes that character that much more appealing. But of course, you have to throw in a villain that's gonna challenge and test him in a way that he hasn't been challenged and tested before. And uh, that is embodied by the extraordinary Jamie Foxx, who, um, if you know anything about Electro, 
what we've able to, I think, been able to achieve is this uh, uh, him. He's godlike in his power, and for for someone like Spider-Man to confront a a villain that you know, when you come into contact with them, it's like touching a thousand third rails. You know, you're obliterated. So how do you fight and contend with somebody when your most powerful weapon, your webs, conduct electricity? I don't know. It's a lot of a lot of fun to be had there. Comic-Con's a really uh, wonderful experience. There's such a positive, uncynical energy to, to, to people who really loved and supported not just this character, but all these fantastical worlds. I think they're going to have a, a really fun time. I think they're going to appreciate the humor, the wit of Spider-Man, but I also think um, they're going to be surprised. I think people are going to be really intrigued by this movie, and there's going to be a lot of people talking after it. After it. What's awesome is is that we get to um, we get to build on a foundation that we set with the first one. You know, we were we were tied into we, we, we were kind of responsible. We had to we had to really set build, set a base for us for ourselves. And now what the beauty of it is is we get to really expand, explore. And um, the, the Alex Kurtzman, Bob Orsi wrote wrote something la layered and rich and and full of um, twists and turns and and um, dimension. So I. And, and, and I think it's going to be a, a more fun, a much more fun picture. His split personalities. He has two. He has he's two different people. He is Spider-Man. He is the older brother, and then he is Peter Parker. He is the younger brother, the younger brother in the shadow of himself, and the older brother that's 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 more than human. But then he becomes all too human, as we know. Peter goes through, you know, historically the worst crap a person can go through, especially a young a young man. And then he gets this incredible release as Spider-Man, but also that dream ends at a certain point. He has to come home and feel the bangs and the bruises and the scrapes, and he has to deal with paying rent. You know that that's the, the mundanity, the mundanity compared like versus the the um, the superhuman fantasy is is what's exciting to explore. Orson Scott Card's amazing science fiction novel Ender's Game is due in theaters this November, and most of the cast was on hand at Comic-Con to talk about the film. Here are Harrison Ford, Asa Butterfield, and Haley Stanfeld with their thoughts on their roles in the movie. The book deals with a lot of uh, very complex uh, issues of uh, social responsibility and, uh, and the... the moral issues that one faces when one in, uh, is part of a military establishment. I was just delighted to be involved in, in a, a film with such high ambition and such talented people. Uh, uh, I think uh, uh, Graf is a much more complex uh, character than, uh, than uh, Han Solo, uh, which doesn't mean uh, um, that I uh, regret Han Solo. <laughs> yeah. so, thank you. Uh, question for Aza and Haley. These are characters I've admired since I've read the book. Uh, what did you love about them, and how cool is it to play these characters? Um, I read the book. I'm a huge fan of science fiction, so I had a great time reading it, and Ender's character... Yes, the film is a science fiction epic, but um, to me there's a lot more to it than that in the, in the novel and in this character. One of the reasons it was so intriguing to me is because of the complexity of it. And me and Gavin talked a lot prior to shooting about 
where we wanted to take it and we talked a lot about Ender's character and the constant internal struggle that he's facing throughout the film and his development is apparent and it's, it was really intriguing for me and we had a good time experimenting, experimenting really? with it. Um, something uh, that I loved about the project as a whole was the fact that uh, it had such a huge fan base. Um, for me, sort of creating a backstory uh, for Petra was also interesting because you're introduced to her uh, a little further into the story. Um, but one of the most exciting things is sort of experiencing uh, the excitement that everybody around us has. Uh, it's been such a great experience and we're so excited to, to share it with you guys. From the Hunger Games, Catching Fire, here's Academy Award winner Jennifer Lawrence and co-star Joss Hutcherson talking about Comic-Con, the film, and their fans. Well, I mean, we wouldn't have these movies if we didn't if we didn't have the fans that we do. And these are the people who we're thinking about when we're on set and we think about what they want, you know, the hardcore people who love these movies are the people who we, who we really think about and focus on. And so to actually get to be in the same room with that support, it's nerve-wracking because they are our we need them, um, and but also really exciting. I'm excited. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm really excited. You know, um, I'm really proud of the movie, and and, and I want to see uh, how the fans react to it. I know they're going to be stoked, so I can't wait. It's wild. I mean, the Hunger Games fans from from the very beginning have been so passionate and have been so supportive to, to kind of come to the mecca of fandom is uh, is really exciting. It's nice. I mean, we've all been off different parts of the world doing different things, so it's nice to have a, a meeting place. It's kind of interesting that it has to be so crazy with so many people, but uh, no, it's really great to get everybody together again. Capping off the movie coverage, here's star Tom Hiddleston, who plays Loki, talking about Thor The Dark World. When we first came down, I think probably fans didn't know what to make of Thor. They didn't, it was an interesting character. It was people thought, how does that character translate to the big screen, to a movie adaptation? And, and Kenneth Branagh really, um, really delivered on that. And now, and then Joss Whedon, using Thor and Loki in the Avengers, and people um, seem to really love the characters and to come back, kind of, um, the, well, the fans have been enormously kind to me and to the characters, so to come back, sort of complete the circle and just give all the love back, basically. Honestly, it was a wall of sound. I, 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 there, there was adrenaline pumping through my body. I, it was probably akin to the adrenaline that goes through your body when you're involved in a car crash. It was, it was uh, extraordinary reception. Because um, it started with a voiceover, and I, and, and I was off stage delivering it, but there was a, maybe a sense that, that in the audience that it was just pre-recorded or something. And then there's a flash of light, and then I walk out in sort of semi-darkness while everyone's blinded and the lights came up and I was there and I've never heard a noise like it. I mean, I'm a stage actor. I trained at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. 7,000 or 6,500 people is certainly the biggest gig I've ever played. So it was fun, yeah. In gaming news and as a fan of the series, when I heard that Dead Rising 3 was going to have some details at Comic-Con, I knew that I had to include little mention in Mediabox. Here is producer Mike Jones, art director Alan Jarvie, and executive producer and creative lead Josh Bridge talking about what makes the sequel cooler, bigger, and badder than ever before. Watch the video from The Gory Game on our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash thegatemag under gaming playlist. Dead Rising 3 is a poor sandbox filled with zombies, filled with weapons. You versus a horde of enemies. 
On Xbox One, we've been able to create a huge world. It's larger than both of our previous games combined multiple times over. There's always a landmark building. There's always a very recognizable skyline. Fully streaming. No load times, no waiting. A true open world game. Our new generation of zombies are smarter and way more deadly. Oh my god. It's like it knows something about when it was alive. A couple things that we did with Kinect that actually really tie into the core gameplay experience is one is with audio. Oh, you can actually I'll just distract them by just yelling out in the room, which is actually pretty funny. Looking for a snack? You know, we have so much more horsepower here. Let's actually invest in how they can see and hear and actually use some of this really cool real-time lighting as some of the things that they can see as well. You can use flares, you can use headlights, you can set traps in the environment. Dead Rising 3 is all about improvisational gameplay. Do what you want and play how you want. Or you can put on a banana hammock and decapitate zombies online with your buddy if you want. I'm Pierce Handling, Director and CEO of TIFF. And I'm Cameron Bailey, Artistic Director of the Toronto International Film Festival. In 44 days, we will be kicking off the 38th Toronto International Film Festival. Beginning today, we will let you in on the incredible works that will be lighting up the screens of Toronto this September. What is bringing us together today and what brings us together all year long is an appreciation and a deep love of cinema. That's what drives this festival and that's what drives the organization. We have a mighty team of programmers who spend countless hours chasing, tracking, and screening films from all over this planet. Their never-ending quest to find Toronto audiences the best cinema from around the world is admirable. Their work, passion, and knowledge are the lifeblood of the festival. Thank you to the programming team for bringing us another banner year of discoveries and master filmmakers. The Toronto National Film Festival is one of the big highlights of my year as hundreds of filmmakers, celebrities, and talented people descend on the city to celebrate interesting and compelling cinema. This year's festival runs from September 5th to 15th, and early in the week, festival director and CEO Piers Handling and artistic director Cameron Bailey announced some of the films of premiere for 2013, and the list is once again very impressive. Among the galas and special presentations that were announced, here are a few highlights from the list. The opening night gala will be director Bill Condon's The Fifth Estate, following the story of real-life WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange starring Benedict Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch also appears in two other films, including what looks like Oscar-ready 12 Years a Slave from director Steve McQueen and starring Chuatal Ejiofor as a free man sold into slavery in the American South. Otherwise, Cumberbatch appears in August, Osage County, alongside Meryl Streep, Sam Shepard, Julia Roberts, and Juliette Lewis in a story about a family who comes together after their patriarch commits suicide. The other big drama premiering at the festival, which again looks like a lock for at least a few Oscar nominations, is Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom, starring Idris Elba in the title role as the revered Nelson Mandela. Other notable films include the Cannes award-winning film Blue is the Warmest Color, Mary, Queen of Scots, and Don John, which stars and was directed by Joseph Gordon-Levitt. There's also the Jimi Hendrix biopic All Is By My Side, starring outcast Andre Benjamin, and Children of Men director Alfonso Cuaron's space drama Gravity, starring George Clooney and Sandra Bullock. Coming up, we can expect more announcements from TIFF, including the Midnight Madness films, featuring the best in horror and action films, 
plus the Canadian movies, which will be announced on August 7th. Stay tuned to The Gate and Media Box for more coverage during and after TIFF. The Emmy Award nominations were announced last week, and before I get into anything else, there is one snub that I want to get off my chest before I talk about anything else. Fans of science fiction know one thing. When it comes to major awards, including the Oscars, the Emmys, and even the Golden Globes, we know that our favorite stars don't stand a chance of winning anything. So we're generally amazed if something or someone we love gets a nomination. There was a sparkle of hope this year, though, when Canadian actress Tatiana Maslany, who stars in Orphan Black, won the Critics' Choice TV Award for Best Actress in a Drama, and rightfully so. Maslany is one of the most incredible television actresses I've ever seen. In Orphan Black, she plays seven women, and counting, who discover they are all clones, and often Maslany plays these women in the same scene. What's remarkable is that, for the first time in my memory, she pulls off playing multiple characters in a series perfectly. She breathes life into each of these women, and there is no question, when you watch the show, that these women are unique. Maslany finds mannerisms for each of the clones and makes it seem like these characters are being played by different actresses. But of course, they're not. With that in mind, and even just seeing the outcry on Twitter, it's hard to imagine that the Emmys got their nominations right this year. A lot of the categories are dominated by big names, and for the most part, that does make sense. But ignoring Maslany in the nominations is a big deal, and it proves that the Emmys may never take genre television seriously. Either that, or they won't pay attention to anything that doesn't star a major, well-known actor. The other problem, though, is that, like most award shows, the whole thing comes down to popularity and campaigning, and a series like Orphan Black probably does not stand a chance either way. On the bright side, there was some good news from the Emmy Awards. Netflix, after only a few months of running their own original series, nabbed an impressive 14 nominations, including for Best Series for House of Cards, starring Kevin Spacey. House of Cards will compete for Best Series against Breaking Bad, Downton Abbey, Game of Thrones, Homeland, and Mad Men. As a fan of the unique series, it's great news to see the Emmy Awards recognizing that quality shows are coming from new places, and that includes an upstart company that sells subscriptions online. The other big Emmy news came from American Horror Story, which captured 17 nominations, the same number as Mad Men. The trick, though, is that American Horror Story actually is competing as a miniseries, rather than as a television series. That will definitely help them, but I'm not sure that I would agree they deserve all the, that praise. The show is definitely very clever, with great performances, but I would place it a few notches below a series like Mad Men or Game of Thrones. The Emmy Awards will air on September 22nd. Please welcome to the stage president of Mathletes, as well as our own self-published magazine, Women with a Y, valedictorian Brandy Clark. Get off the stage, virgin! <laughs> Going to college. I have to register, contact my dorm mate, label my clothes. Oh my God, stop. I'm taking you to a college party. <laughs> I'm out of here. My dad is a judge. He'd be so disappointed. Wait, who is that? Rusty Waters. We can stay. Spinderella cut it up one time. I didn't know what to do. I always know what to do. Freshman year is like one big sexual pop quiz. You need to do your homework. Homework? Yeah. Let's do this. To do before I leave for college. There are things on this list that I haven't even done, Brandy. Motor boating. Uncle Andy has a boat. That should be easy. 
help you. I've decided to lose my virginity to Rusty Waters. You want fries with that? No. Moving on to new releases, the to-do list is set in 1993 with Aubrey Plaza playing high school valedictorian Brandy Clark. Brandy is an uber nerd who feels like she's missing out on sex, and she wants to fix that before she heads off to college in the fall. The film is funny, by times, and Aubrey is a good lead, but the script feels sluggish and somehow shy about big laughs. Bill Hader, Rachel Bilson, and even Clark Gregg provide some of the few really funny scenes, but it feels a lot like Brandy's attempts at sex, awkward and rigid. The great thing about the film, though, and probably the reason the to-do list should get some play, is that the film has a fairly refreshing view of sexuality where Brandy learns from her mistakes, and sex is neither the best or the worst thing in the world. Brandy even has a very positive outlook on everything and seems like a rather empowered woman, especially by teen comedy standards. Otherwise, arriving in theater last week were R.I.P.D. and Red 2, Two dud films that further cement the crummy summer blockbusters we've been having in 2013. R.I.P.D. stars Ryan Reynolds as a recently deceased cop who is recruited in the afterlife to bring in bad dead guys, and he's teamed up with the wisecracking old-timey Roy, played by Jeff Bridges, who happens to be the best thing about the film. Although I will admit that I did enjoy R.I.P.D. because it's stupidly fun, it's not a great film, and co-stars Kevin Bacon as... Well, you'll know as soon as you see him, which is in the first few seconds. Interestingly enough, R.I.P.D. was directed by Robert Swentke, who happened to direct the original and superior Red. Compared to that film, Red 2 is a waste of almost every talent in the film, including Bruce Willis, John Malkovich, Helen Mirren, and Anthony Hopkins. Oddly enough, Mary Louise Parker is in both Red 2 and R.I.P.D., and I enjoyed her in both films. Anyway, Red 2 has a group of retired and extremely dangerous killers back together when Frank, played by Bruce Willis, becomes public enemy number one when a top-secret mission from decades earlier gets leaked. Bodies and bullets fly, but there is very little sense or of urgency this time out, or comedy for that matter. Galaxy Quest director Dean Parasad wastes the talent of this incredible cast and even manages to turn the great John Malkovich into a walking punchline, while Dame Helen Mirren is nothing more than a cheap sidekick. Otherwise, coming up on Blu-ray this Tuesday, July 30th, you can check out G.I. Joe Retaliation and the fourth season of one of my favorite television shows, Star Trek The Next Generation. I can't speak much for the former, but Star Trek TNG has looked stunning on Blu-ray, and the remastering process has made this old series look almost perfect again. To celebrate the heat of summer this week, I wanted to offer up a quick list of my 13 favorite summer movies. What makes a great summer movie, you might ask? I'll tell you. It comes down to great comedy, action, and a classic concept. Here they are in no particular order. The classic summer vampire flick, Lost Boys. The modernly weird and wonderful Spring Breakers. Ridley Scott's charming romantic comedy, A Good Year. Action classic, Point Break. Comedy classics, Weekend at Bernie's, The Great Outdoors, and National Lampoon's Vacation. Steven Spielberg's original blockbuster, Jaws, the quirky and sweet gross-out comedy, American Pie, girl-powered surfing drama, Blue Crush, Cameron Crowe's music-fueled drama, Almost Famous, the ridiculous and funny Eurotrip, and Michael Bay's explosion-fueled Transformers. If you haven't seen one of these films in a while, I definitely recommend sitting down with a bucket of popcorn and checking them out. Closing out this week's show, here is Monster Truck's Sweet Mountain River from their album Furiosity on Dynalone Records. 
Check out the Juno Award-winning band at ilovemonstertruck.com. You can also catch them on tour right now, including in Toronto at Edgefest on July 31st. Mm-hmm. 